what some of the misconceptions about church really is. And so first of all, we can't really have a discussion like that until we realize that nowhere in the entire Bible does the church actually really exist. That word was really never a part of the original translation. It doesn't exist in any of the uh, original manuscripts. And so what we have substituted for the word ecclesia is the word church. And the problem with that, it's not that we're really trying to strain at a gnat or really do a lot of verbal gymnastics, or it's not that even I'm trying to go after the church per se. What I am trying to do is to help us understand in a deeper way that a lot of what we experience in modern churchianity really just is not real. So let's talk about that tonight. I want to have an open, candid conversation. Now, I'm, I don't mean to, to say that in a way that is divisive or is meant to attack or anything like that. What I'm trying to tell you is a lot of what people call church really isn't what Jesus actually built. All right, so let's talk about it. Let me clarify that. And you were supposed to stand up and call me a false prophet at some point. Oh, there you are. No, I'm kidding. Um, so anyway... The word church is an interesting thing. You can pick a, uh, any dictionary that you want, and you're going to come up with probably the first line under church is a building. So is ecclesia a building? Nope. Probably the next line you're going to see it say something like clergy or something religious or something that you do. Let's have church. Let's crank up the music and let's have church was an old song a while back. But in all of these modern concepts of church, what we've done is we've given a meeting and a culture that really is something separate than what Jesus intended. So I, what I want to do tonight is kind of walk you through just briefly a little history, and then I want to end up with how to actually function as an ecclesia and what that really can look like. Because the idea of just coming to church and doing church really misses the mark entirely. I mean, we're not really even hitting the bullseye if our only concept of church is coming and sitting and spectating, right? All right, so how did we get church? So if the word church really isn't a, an accurate or a really good translation of the word ecclesia, how did we get the word? And so I'm going to give you just really a, just kind of a whirlwind tour, and I'm going to try not to talk too much, but I want to, I want to lay out one principle before we get started, that as near as I understand, understand Scripture, there's two dynamics that are really happening here. First of all, there's the idea of kingdom. Second, there's the idea of ecclesia. And in order to really get this, what we have to understand is, is that ecclesia or assembly is actually a function of kingdom. Where there is no kingdom, there really is no ecclesia. There is only just people getting together and doing lots of other things other than putting Jesus at the center of it all. And so when you really look at the, go the gospel of the kingdom or what was preached by Jesus, he was always talking about the kingdom. And Anytime he would do a miracle, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Uh, the Beatitudes are really talking about the culture of what it looks like when the kingdom of God arrives. Isaiah says that he's going to come with the government on his shoulders. And so when Jesus comes and when his kingdom comes, it brings his government or his culture with him. And so what we have to understand is, is that really, in my view, um, it was never really about a church planning movement. Paul really was not a church planner, and it had really nothing to do with planning churches. What it really had to do with is a gospel of the kingdom, a word, a revelation that comes out of the kingdom of God, that when it is present and begins to take root, it displaces every other kingdom. So you understand that if we go and we plant a church, all we're doing is ordering our lives around something that we planted. When we preach the gospel of the kingdom and we carry forth the revelation of who Jesus is and we pull out of that revelation knowledge of that kingdom, then what it does when it goes forth is it begins to displace the darkness or every other kingdom in a person's mind. It dislodges it. They come into saving faith. They begin to carry the revelation of Jesus Christ. And out of that, kingdom culture arrives and the most logical thing to ever happen is people assemble into ecclesia and it comes as the byproduct not the prime product. When we stopped focusing on preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we started focus on building churches, and we built churches without the kingdom. All right, so let me, uh, how do we get there? So quick little history tour. So really about 380 A.D., 
the Roman emperor Theodosius the Great made Christianity the natural or national religion of the Roman Empire. That was preceded by Constantine. Some of you probably heard that. Uh, at the sign of the cross, you'll win the battle. And so he won wars. And what, he, what Constantine's, uh, Constantine's contribution was, was to basically make it illegal to persecute Christians anymore. And then a little while later, the emperor comes along and he says, well, we're going to make Christianity the national religion of the Roman Empire and where it was organic ecclesias that were operating out of an apostolic government, out of the revelatory government of heaven, suddenly a state church comes in and begins to kind of hijack this movement, and they make it more about buildings than anything else. And so what ends up taking place is about a thousand years after this happens, for roughly a thousand years, it brought forth a formalized religion that provided a substitute, really, to true kingdom culture. And so really why I make the distinction is because in a lot of ways there's two competing cultures. There's church culture that has as its basis a lot of consumeristic mindsets that kind of says, as a church culture, the church exists to meet my needs. That the church that offers the superior product, religious product, I will go and, and, and pay good money to get that superior product. So what is the product? Well, it's good sermons. It's good worship. It's good, a lot of the thing, good programs for my kids. It's all these things, and if I don't like the product you're serving, I'm going to go find another church that has the better product. And so what church culture does is it's a subculture that has a lot of God language thrown in, but we live out of a culture where we've been taught how to be passive, to sit in seats, to look at the back of someone's neck, and then every once in a while kind of get involved in, in, in a little bit of, a, a, little bit of a, um, you know, a program here and there. And, and, and while that doesn't describe every church, what it does is it has at its center a culture that makes us more consumers than anything else. I mean, come on, if, you, if you're really with me on that, you'll realize that when the pastor doesn't get it right, two or three weeks in a row, suddenly you're not being fed anymore and you're going to go find another church, or a lot of people do. And so what, what this does is it set really at odds two different kingdoms because the kingdom of God was never about spectating. The kingdom of God was always about participation. Every single person, Jeremiah preached a couple weeks ago, the season of fitting, that puzzle piece, allowing God to set each one into the body so that you are actively, in, actively participating and fulfilling a function. I heard one preacher say it this way, that the miracle's always in the house. And that so when, when the miracle's not in the house, that means somebody's missing that should be filling a slot in the, in the entire ecclesia in that body that should be present. And so what ends up happening is you have these two cultures where one is more of a passive culture, one is a kingdom culture where every member is being trained and equipped to fit their place in kingdom. See, Jesus in Matthew 6.33 didn't say, seek first the church. What did he say? Seek first the kingdom. Uh, it even says in Hebrews that even if you have tasted of the powers of the age to come, what's the powers of the age to come? It's the perfection of a kingdom where there is no imperfection. And so that literally as you operate in a gift of the Spirit, whether you prophesy or you manifest one of the 12 uh, operations of the Holy Spirit, you are literally tasting or manifesting from an age of perfection and bringing it into the here and now. Whenever someone gets healed by prayer, King, the kingdom of God is invading this earth, and it is literally displacing a natural law and superseding it with a kingdom law. So what we are more than anything else is we are kingdom people who are kingdom-minded, and really it was never about the local church in terms of becoming so inward-focused that we neglect to understand that what drives ecclesia is not church culture, but it's a kingdom culture. When Jesus came and he said, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it could really be said this way, seek first the kingdom and the righteousness or the culture of the kingdom. So that righteousness that he talks about is kingdom culture. It's the thing that happens when in Acts 2.42 it says they broke bread, they began to meet, they listened to the apostles' teaching. That's not Acts Church. That has nothing to do with Acts Church. That is the byproduct of what it looks like when kingdom culture comes in and takes root and suddenly people do what's natural because we've been called into an assembly with God and out of that assembly 
symbol, we begin to be living epistles or living expressions of kingdom culture. Jesus said it was the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He said that you have the kingdom on the inside of you. And so what Paul understood and all of the disciples is that everywhere he went, Acts 19, those who've turned the world upside down have come here also. We talk a lot about being on fire and we come up front and we lift our hands and we travail and we groan and we moan and we talk about we're so on fire. But man, I'm like thinking, no, you're not really on fire until you stir up a crowd and a mob, get them to come after you because your gospel was so potent that it literally disrupted the religious status quo, the Caesar worship and all that stuff, and it made people grit their teeth. So the gospel is really, the gospel of the kingdom is not a gospel of passivity. It's a gospel of power that when it is truly preached, cannot but other than manifest the power of God. That, that's not even a no-brainer, because the gospel itself contains the power of God. I heard it said this way, that the word of God is not only really a double-edged sword, it's more like a double-voice sword. That what ends up happening on one side is God's voice and his word, and on the other side is a man or a woman of God who will come into agreement with that word, be the other side of the sword, and then it goes out to penetrate. And so what God is looking for in kingdom and in ecclesia are men and women of God to come up to a kingdom stature to understand that we're being equipped and built up to function in the kingdom. And so let me just point one thing to you that, that in Matthew 6, 33, he goes through this discourse about what the Gentiles are chasing after. And really what he's talking about is this, that he's helping us to understand one really big law in the Spirit, and that is this, that what you seek first, you will order your life around. So let's think about that. So when he said all the Gentiles are chasing after everything under the sun, that's still just as true today. The thing that's going to make me happy at Barnes & Noble is all of the books on the shelves in the self-help section, volumes and volumes and volumes of books on what to do to make myself happy and help myself. But then we realize that if, if the moment, and I tell students and everybody I talk to all the time, that if you order a li your life around your freedom, and if you order your life around damage, then you're going to focus on the problem and never get out of it. What I seek first becomes what I order my entire life around. So if I want to stop looking at pornography and I say, I've got to, I've got to manifest my life and I've got to, I've got to figure out how to stop looking at pornography and I begin to seek first, stop looking at pornography, then all I'm going to do is order my life around my bondage, right? But when I stop defining my problem as the lack of something or the absence of something in my life, and I start defining the issue as who is present in my life and how to get more of him manifested through my life, then suddenly I'm not ordering my life around my problem. I'm ordering my life around the problem solver. All right? So in kingdom, what we have to understand is the biggest principle, and this is why we fail so often, is because we're seeking the wrong thing. And the consequence of that is, what, is we're ordering our lives around the wrong thing that we're seeking. So now, let's pull that back into where we are right now. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom. Why? Because in it is the gospel in it is the power. In it is the blueprints for ecclesia. In it is a Christ-centered church where he has the preeminence and everything that happens is gathered around Jesus and who he is and not what a man wants. And so in consumer church, when we took the kingdom culture out, we really made it about people and about how to draw crowds and fill seats and then how to get those best problems so we got our best, uh, best products. So we've got to create that best program that tailors to kids and youth and worship and all that kind of stuff. And they're not wrong. They're just not what we're called to order our lives around. Beloved, you are not called to be consumer Christians. You realize how anti-kingdom that really is. And um, so what I want to encourage you with is this, going forward, so we had the state-run church, and then what ends up happening is about a thousand years, it gets really crazy. I mean, if you do a quick uh, timeline search on Christian, Christian history, you're going to see this whole thousand-year section where, where, where basically you see things like popes accusing one another of being the Antichrist. You see this whole long section of people being burned at the stake for opposing the church. You see this other long section of all sorts of atrocities, murder, and all these different things, because where there is no kingdom culture, there is no king. 
So when we say kingdom, there's a king who rules, there's a kingdom whose rule we come under, and we live out of the culture of his king. That is the government of God. And so for a thousand years this happens, and so then what ends up taking place is, is um, the Catholic Church really becomes the power center of religion and establishes itself fu and fully immerses itself in the empire. Well, one of the big uh, results of that is now the common man isn't really qualified to read or interpret Scripture for himself. And so it becomes literally illegal to actually translate the Scriptures out of Latin and into English, and really only the rich and the powerful or those who were uh, versed in Hebrew and Greek could actually even get the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves. And so what happens is the state church maintains its power through bloody crusades, inquisitions, in the name of doctrinal purity. And at one point, the state church even authorizes and legitimizes torture and murder of all those who oppose it. That doesn't look like kingdom culture to me. But then along comes a really thorn in the side of the church, and that's a man by the name of William Tyndale. William says, you know what, it's not right. A lot of what they're doing is just false. And along with being inspired by Martin Luther's revelation, he decides that it's time that the, the, the scriptures get translated out of Latin and brought into English. And so he, he escapes in the cover of night to Europe. He does his translation, and then he sneaks it back into England um, in about October of 1815, or excuse me, 1526. By this time, a bishop by the name of Cuthbert Tunstall, who is an advisor to King Henry VIII, issues a condemnation of Tyndale's work, and he stages a burning of the Tyndale's New Testament at St. Paul's Cross, and he preaches a message denouncing it as strange doctrine. Today, all but two of those texts have survived the, the mass destruction and the, and the plan and the strategy to get rid of them all because the common man shouldn't have the opportunity to read the Bible for himself under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's way better suited for us to interpret it for you to tell you what to think. And so then what ends up happening is um, Tunstall taps in a great scholar by the name of Sir Thomas More. After reading this forbidden text, Moore writes of Tyndale, He was a hellhound in the kennel of the devil, discharging a filthy foam of blasphemies out of his brutish, beastly mouth. I mean, he was labeled the greatest heretic that ever hit the church of Eng or the, the Catholic Church. And then Moore goes on to write a pretty popular work in his day called The Dialogue Concerning Heresies. And in this famous text, he assails both Tyndale and Luther as enemies of the church and of all decency. And moreover, he accuses Tyndale of attempting to lead the people who would read that through mistranslations of Scripture. Let me give you an example of three of those. One, he translates, he, he dare had the audacity to take the word agape and translate it love instead of charity. Secondly, he takes another Greek word that we know, we've heard a lot of metanoia, or metanoio, and he, he, he issues the charge that Tintel in, inaccurately translates that word repent instead of do penance. And then lastly, the most audacious charge of all was that he translated the word ecclesia into congregation instead of church. Heresy. And so what ends up happening is Moore writes in his defense, Tyndale comes out with a, a, a work that opposes Moore's first work, and he writes Sir Thomas Moore's dialogue where he issues a lengthy defense of a substitution for the word congregation for church. And he lays out a real apologetic case for why that is not the correct translation. And in it, he concludes with this and says that though... Um, he says that the final draw and why he could never translate it at his church was that over time clerics and monks had stolen the name for themselves. The result was that church became known as the visible ecclesiastical hierarchy, which resulted in the veneration of the cleric class and their ill-gotten wealth on the backs of the church. 
And though threatened by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, Tyndale would not recant. He would not back down. And so as a result, um, he was betrayed by Sir Thomas More and sentenced to death. And when William Tyndale was burned at the stake by 1536 by the church that had replaced the word ecclesia. Then again, you should know this part. In 1532, just slightly before that happened, King Henry VIII decides that he's mad at the Catholic Church but the, because they won't grant him a divorce to go marry a different woman. And so in his rebellion, he persuades English Parliament to separate from the Catholic Church, thereby making King Henry VIII the head of the English Church and nullifying the Pope's authority. He said, well, peace, we're out. We're starting our own thing. And so then what ends up happening in 1604, the new state-run Church of England authorizes the King James Version. King James deploys 47 translators and 15 rules he issues for translating Scripture. This is what you may and may not do when you, when you write and translate the authorized King James Version of the Bible. In one of those, he says, Article 3 states that the old ecclesiastical words are to be kept and the word church shall not be translated to congregation. So by translating ecclesia as church instead of congregation or assembly, King James and the Anglican state church accomplished their goal of maintaining power by defining Christ's ecclesia as belonging to the Lord or the king, which is what church means, instead of a legislative ruling assembly that has been authorized by kingdom authority. What I'm not out to do is make you mad about church. I'm not on a crusade about church. I'm giving you a little bit of history so you can understand what it is that really Jesus is calling us into. All right? So let's, let's do this. So the state church really changes, in a lot of ways, the essential nature of ecclesia, and from it, a, a reformation came. That was the byproduct of a reformation, and it addressed most of what was going on in the state church of the day. But the problem is, it had at its core a knee-jerk or a uh, protest of the current church. What it didn't really have is a complete vision of what the kingdom of God really was. Because when we started calling out all of the ills and the wrongs, and in his, in his thesis that he nails on the door... He, he calls it all right, so I'm not challenging that. But what we didn't get out of the Protestant Reformation is we didn't really get kingdom culture. We just got a protest movement that really started splintering and creating protest movements. And all that's really been happening now are new churches that get started because we were mad at the last church that we were at, a new church that got started over here because we have a doctrinal distinctive that opposes. And so really what you have are a lot of ways all these all these churches that get started out of protest and, and defining themselves by what they don't like rather than by kingdom culture that has the transformative power to actually shift and change regions. And so when Jesus made the comment in Matthew 16 that I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail, he did two things. He basically declares war on hell, and he says, I'm going to come in, I'm going to pick up your gates, and I'm going to show you where you're not strong, and I'm going to show you that what I build, you cannot do one thing about. And even in the midst of all of the travesty of people substituting and all these power brokers and all these people coming in and trying to change the nature of the church. Even in the middle of all that, there was always a remnant people that carried the revelation of Jesus Christ and could not bow to it. That will always happen. And so here what we see now is, is this idea that Ecclesia really is just a byproduct of kingdom culture. What we need to understand as believers is, is that every single one of us on the inside of us carry the kingdom of God on the inside of us. That everywhere you go, you have an ability to begin to manifest that kingdom. And that kingdom has the ability to begin to change and displace darkness everywhere you go. And so the church never was about coming into a building, hearing sermonettes, having some great worship, sitting and listening and never really doing anything about it. That's church people. Kingdom culture says and raises up and begins to identify and equip every single believer for um, 
all of their gifts, all of their abilities, so they won't be uh, basically tossed around by every wind or by every wave of doctrine. And it positions them into their place in the kingdom so that really what we do is continue to fulfill what Jesus said in Matthew 16, which is every single one of us has the ability to displace darkness everywhere we go. And so when we talk about regional transformation, we talk about uh, uh, you know, uh, the seven mountains and all these different things, call it whatever you want, but what I understand it to be is I, I don't have to be called here or there or anywhere. I have the kingdom of God, and wherever I go, I manifest that kingdom. And so what we have to do, so, so you can see some of the brilliance of the strategy. When Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail, it didn't mean he wouldn't try. And in some, in some respects, looking at the timeline of church history, it almost looks like he did. But the brilliance of what Jesus accomplished is he never came and defined polity and how actually to have church. You ever notice in the Bible, it never really says the first 20 minutes is fast music, and we're going to call that praise. And then we'll do a few more little songs. We'll call those worship. And then we'll, we'll have announcements, and then we'll do some preaching. There was never the formula of that anywhere in Scripture. And so when we got focused on how we do it, we get distracted on the real important thing is that every single one of you who really does carry the true revelation only given by the Father, not by any kind of tricksy, neat little um, persuasive arguing and trying to convince you into the kingdom, it never works because you only come into the kingdom when the Father grants you entrance and you really only get entrance by revelation when the gospel of the kingdom is preached. That's why sometimes when the gospel's preached, hearts will harden and others will enter in and see the kingdom in the gospel message and so what we need to understand in ecclesia is to begin to realize that we have a function as the living breathing body of christ and that we need to come back into an identity of what it means not all of the how-to's and what we're doing and all of the modes and all the models but coming back to a kingdom identity that is often most expressed as our assembly through an ecclesia so assembly is really, ecclesia is really about two things. It's our identity because we assemble, and it's, and it's our identity as we assemble. And so what, there's, there's two dynamics to that. There's what we do and what happens when we come into assembly, but at the bare, bare minimum or at the broadest understanding of this, ecclesia, not church, assembly is really about people coming together to assemble. So this kind of makes the argument, I am the church. N not, not really. I, I mean, not, not, not really the way people are saying that. A again, every time ecclesia is mentioned in the Bible, it is specifically pe speaking of a group of people that assembled together somewhere at a specific group and point in time. So if you're saying you are the ecclesia, not really. I mean, I mean you are in the context of you assembling with the ecclesia, but again, there's not this idea that I am the church and I don't have to go to church or I am the ecclesia and I don't have to go to ecclesia because this is really where I want to kind of land tonight. So let me kind of dovetail into this and say that and listen, if you got your Bibles or you want to look at Scripture, let's go to Ephesians 4. And I want to make one statement as I transition into this and we're going to read through this and talk about how to function as an ecclesia. So one thing, one last thing I want to say about kingdom culture. How many of you have seen the, the video, Sheep Among Wolves? In a lot of ways, the folks that are doing this got a vision of what kingdom is and could be. And if you haven't seen that, YouTube it. Uh, there's, there's, two verse, there's two basic videos to that, part one and part two. I forget which one it is, but in the midst of talking about what, what's happening in Iran, they go into another area, and I, it escapes me which one it is. I believe it's an Asian uh, territory. And they start talking about how the gospel never took root. And so all you see in this big, big city is this one little outdated church building that's now just a museum that people come visit and go, oh, wow, that was actually here at one time. And beyond that, the gospel never takes root in any meaningful way. And that's because when we try to plant a church apart from an understanding that what really transforms is not a building and planting people and bringing them together in a church service. It's, it's, it's preaching and releasing the revelation of the kingdom of God. And so in Acts 19, you guys are familiar with this. I think this has gotten preached here a couple times. But in Acts 19, it talks about how really uh, the only three places they couldn't actually translate 
uh, ecclesia to the word church because it simply wouldn't make sense is when Paul and Silas go into, I think it's Thessalonica, right? And they stir up the crowd. They start preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It gets the crowd stirred up. They create a riot. They call the town council, the ecclesia, and they, they issue the charge. The men who are turning on the world upside down have now come here also. And they're preaching a superior king than Caesar. So you have to understand that, that the gospel of the kingdom had within its message that you cannot enter the kingdom unless you forsake the one you're in. It was never about make me feel good, make Jesus bless me, convince me that I'm going to really get a lot of benefit out of following Jesus. It was you can't even enter the kingdom until you lay this one down that you're currently in. That was the message and the understanding that completely permeated their idea. We talk a lot about um, being lukewarm. We, we use the idea that we're a Laodicean church and, and we're lukewarm, and we don't even really totally understand what the context of that means. In the idea that in order to come into his ecclesia, you have to reject its principles and all inferior kingdoms that are ruled by hell and inspired by hell. And, and we have to understand something, that God loved the world, right? But he doesn't love the system that powers it. He doesn't love because it's on fire by hell. The world and its system has at its core a doctrine that is inspired by hell. And at the core of it is humanism. And I am, the, I am my God. I am the most powerful to help myself. I don't need God. And so what ends up taking place is in order to come into God's kingdom, we have to understand that we are forsaking and leaving something behind in order to gain what it is he says he's calling us into. And when that kingdom happens, it dislodges principalities, it dislodges demonic thinking in people's mind, and it provokes and it assaults and it tears down the mental arguments and the imaginations that set itself up against the knowledge of God. The real gospel cuts. The real gospel dislodges and it says the pursuits that you're pursuing are inferior to Matthew 6.33 where the, the superior pursuit of our lives is to order our lives around the king and his kingdom and everything else takes, takes a backseat to that. And so anyway, in um, Sheep Among Wolves, what they realize is they understood that they didn't want to plant churches because it doesn't work. And right now, Iran... Iran is, it is said of Iran that the news article says it this way, that um, it is the fastest growing church, has no buildings, has no central leadership, and it's mostly led by women. Why is that? Because they didn't start to plant churches, they decided to start preaching and releasing the gospel of the kingdom that really calls forth mature disciples because it's not a, here's what you get out of the deal, it's not like the win-win situation and we kind of lull you in by all the good benefits you're going to get. It simply says, there is a king, he has a kingdom, obey him. And so what they did is they started preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They started a discipleship-making movement. They took literally the charge that Jesus said, go into the nations, call them into discipleship, teach them to be my disciples, and tell them to obey everything I've commanded. And so what is the kingdom culture? It's simply the culture of the king that says, obey everything that I've commanded. We accept a new king and we dethrone ourselves off the throne of our lives and we say that we are no longer the king and we give up the right to run our lives the way we want to. And so in the process of that, they tell the story in one of the videos where there's a couple living in Iran that had the opportunity to go out of Iran and come to live in America. And I quote, there is a satanic lullaby here all the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. Let's go back to Iran. The story was disturbing because the woman was discerning a threat to her faith that was a greater threat than the kind of persecution that happens in Iran, and she saw that spiritual sleepiness is a greater threat to her faith than persecution. But you see, when you're living in kingdom, there is no impotence, impetus to actually get sleepy because kingdom is a reality that you live in, not something that you go to every Sunday morning. I 
I want to make one statement about the church in a way, it's kind of a theological statement, or ecclesia rather, and it's this, to understand what it is that Jesus built, it had to endure the most satanic attempts to bring it down possible. So understand that when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia and it will not fail, is essentially what he said, no matter what hell tries to do against it. But in order to have that happen, what he did, which was so brilliant, through kingdom keys and prohibiting and permitting that he gave the apostles, he was able to lay out a kingdom culture and to tell the ecclesia how to function and how to live the reality of kingdom culture by the authority that Jesus gave them through those keys. And one of the things that Paul understood in his theology is that, is that it's not necessarily that we are we are this universal, invisible church as much as it is that when Jesus uses the metaphor that I am the head and that you are the body, anytime a true kingdom ecclesia is formed, it is 100% a complete manifestation of the kingdom and of ecclesia. That means that in any given time, it's almost kind of like sleeper cells. That, that just because this church over here is going apostate and ordaining homosexuals and all that kind of stuff, this church over here never will because they're a fully functioning, complete manifestation and expression of the kingdom of God in the earth. And that's just one of many that we would never know about. And really, it's only the spirit that can truly birth ecclesia and, and cause it to form. And it's the byproduct of a, kingdom, a gospel of the kingdom that's being preached. And so what we have to realize in Paul's understanding is that when he wrote the book of Ephesus, he was writing to the ecclesia of Ecclesis as if they were the only manifestation of the kingdom. Writing to them a complete understanding of what it looks like to function as a, as a 100% complete manifestation of Jesus in the world and he did that with Colossians too they kind of look at look at these both of these books as maybe sister verses so if we can understand ecclesia this way that God wants as an ecclesia heart of the father to be 100% a manifestation and an accurate representation of Jesus Christ in this earth that I believe personally that his best is that we have the full manifestation of fivefold ministry. I know that's the heart here. Not as superstars, but as equippers that raise up and mature and release into the body a revelation that comes through their grace that only their grace has. So, so as a prophet, I'm called to re release and help you to understand the manifestation or help you to re recognize and relate to Jesus the prophet. Not always be the one up here prophesying all the time. Are we a prophetic church? Absolutely we are. We're not only supposed to be a prophetic church, we're supposed to be an apostolic church, we're supposed to be an evangelistic church, we're supposed to be a teaching church, and we're supposed to be a, ch a shepherding church. All of those. The complete revelation of who Jesus is and all of the graces. A a a an apostle over here still needs the grace of an evangelist operating and moving in his life to empower him for evangelism. A prophet still needs the grace of a pastor in his life moving, a grace that only a shepherd has, that a shepherding grace that comes in and tempers some of those areas. So even fivefold ministries who, who, are, who are one specific grace need the graces of other ministries to actually help them to fully manifest and come into a revelation of who Jesus is. And so the ecclesia, the ecclesia are meant to be full expressions. So in Ephesians 4, I'm going to run through this first one. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, so you understand here, this is culture of the kingdom. This is what kingdom looks like. He's defining how when the king comes and the kingdom is present, the culture begins to change into what he's writing about right here. And he's challenging us to it. And he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he says we've been called. Called to what? Called into an assembly that's governed by kingdom culture. Kingdom culture at its heart does something 
that really most of the church, I believe, misses, and that's this one thing. If you don't get anything else, get this one. That in order to come into assembly, in order to function when assembly is called and we come together, the most basic core tenet of assembly is you lay down your personal worship in order to join with and become one voice with the assembled people of God who are connected to heaven and who begin to release what's coming out of the throne room of God. It is really not about your devotional time. It's really not coming together and assembling and soaking. It's really not doing any of that. When you come to assembly, we come with the understanding that we are coming together to assemble as one voice that begins to release what the head of the church is saying and so when we can begin to understand that kingdom mindset and kingdom mentality is about coming together to function as an ecclesia. We don't even really touch the governing aspects of church. That when we come together and Jesus as the head of the church begins to breathe prophetically into a congregation and suddenly an awareness by the Holy Spirit begins to shift all around the building and people begin to understand and maybe a prophetic voice or the speaker or someone stands up under the inspiration of God and begins to speak forth what heaven is feeling about and we or what what heaven is thinking and saying and we begin to gather around that and begin to release it in the spirit that's how the ecclesia governs that's how the the ecclesia brings forth a government of god that begins to shift regions and i'm not talking about taking over the world and making this a christian utopia i'm talking about the spirit I'm, talk, I'm talking about learning how to have the kind of power that when you come in here to a prayer meeting, that there is such a manifestation of the kingdom of God that suddenly an abortion clinic is no longer open in the city. I believe God can do that. I believe that when his church gets a, when the ecclesia gets an understanding and begins to repent and says, no longer do we want to be a consumer culture who's chasing a religious product around from church to church, and I want to, I want to get drawn into and taught how to function in an assembly that suddenly prayer meetings become this opportunity where we start seeing into heaven and begin to speak forth the power and the will of God that really shifts and changes atmospheres. I believe that can happen. I've seen it. We've seen it all throughout Scripture. What we need is to get a little more mature in our understanding and realizing that we can't do it as, as one person, but we can do it when many are brought together and become one. They were in one accord in the upper room, it says. And in this passage of Scripture here, we talk a lot about oneness. So one spirit, uh, one body, he says. One body, the local assembly, must envision itself as a single entity not divided into subdivisions based on ethnicity, gender, or economic status. Galatians 3.8 kind of speaks to that. A staggering blow when the enemy turned the assembly into consumer church, but it reduced the body into being spectators and we lost the culture. But that one body, when we come together, we are to identify and take on an identity that we move and we operate as one. How many of you remember a couple weeks ago? Suddenly, the Holy Spirit starts to manifest in the building, and it just becomes very appropriate to stop singing altogether. And I commend Allison for having enough sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to recognize that he started moving. And then what happens? Nobody knows what to do, but when the music stops, the whole building starts to erupt in tongues, and the song of the Lord starts going up antiphonal singing. Come on, somebody, that's, that's assembly. That's when Jesus comes in and takes over and says, I got this. You guys sit back and let me lead. And then what ends up happening? The Spirit of God hits Diane, and she starts giving this message in tongues. And you knew right there, as a believer, you may not know exactly what the interpretation was, but your spirit was catching that God was here and he's doing something. And then Barry gets up and he starts talking about how we shouldn't medicate with movies. We should own the hunger that we're feeling in our lives. We shouldn't medicate it. We shouldn't try to get rid of it. We should own it and embrace it and let it move us into the presence of God. That something should happen that, that God is so great, that he's so big, that he's so magnificent in our eyes, that every time we come together on a Sunday morning or in any other type of gathering for an ecclesia, that everyone here knows that Jesus is the center of it all and we are going to become one voice to release what it is he's creating and speaking forth from heaven 
What if we stop chasing all the other things that charismatic tell us to chase and we simply say Jesus at the center and nothing else? I, I've often said, and, and I don't, I, I've often said this, that, that even when it comes down to fire, I hear this saying said a lot, I, I don't want to miss the fire, I don't want to miss the fire. But what is the fire? I mean, really. So when we talk about fire, what does that really look like? If, if I take the person, the mom of three kids, who's a faithful mother who gives up every morning and lives in the fear of the Lord, meaning a, a, an honoring of God that in all of her life, all of her life is, is devoted to living out the reality of Scripture and living under kingdom culture and doing everything that he obeyed. Is this not a person on fire? Why does it have to look like that I have to come down front and raise my hands and travail? Why does that have to be the picture of fire? What about the person who's faithful day after day, who honors God in everything that they do, and they took that scripture literally, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, but yet sits on the back row? So I'm not dismissing, I'm not trying to, to demean or to diminish enthusiasm and zeal. The Bible says never be lacking in zeal, but be fervent, fiery, serving the Lord. So I don't diminish that in any way. What I don't say is that the person who really walks with God every day but doesn't have time to spend three hours a day before the Lord because she's raising kids and has a house to take care of and has other things that they're doing, how is she any less on fire just because she's a little intimidated about coming up front during the worship time? And I only say that not necessarily to provoke, but to get us to think about our definition of fire. Because to me, it's only really fire when it does something and manifests something. So it's fire, great, when you're here, but if you can't get to work on time, and if you can't actually do a good job with your boss, how are you on fire? I had, i got to be careful here. I, what, I, what I love is some of the charismatic things that we say. And I'm a charismatic, so I'm not down, I'm not trying to. But, but we, get, we get into these kind of weird things where we, where we get all the spiritual talk, but nobody's actually paying attention to what's really happening. So I, had, I heard one say that we have, we have, we have, uh, we have like, um, uh, you know, God's given us this authority in this region, and, and we're going to use that authority to actually go in and, and accomplish something. And so you have these prayer meetings, and you do all this stuff, and they're invoking the, 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 the spiritual authority that was prophesied to them. But meanwhile, when do I see it? Like, when do I see the crime rates drop? When do I see the adult bookstores close? I mean, at some point, we got to stop talking about it, and if it's real, it has to produce something. So I'm not saying, let's not chase it. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. What I'm saying is, let's be honest and actually take a really good look at reality and pursue it that we get it, but let's not act like we have it when we really don't. So in assembly, one body, one spirit, we gather as one, becoming one expression of the spirit in the earth. We come not to spectate, but we come to become one voice to release what Jesus the head is releasing. One body, one spirit. What I, what I understand that to mean is that it expresses that when we assemble, we are many who come to become one. What if, now just hear me out here, what if we're getting this worship thing all wrong? What if we went back to the old covenant and we took a lesson from Cain and Abel and we understood that Abel gave God the offering that God said he wanted. And what if we understand Cain as the one who gave God the offering he wanted God to have? What if in our worship it wasn't as much about us creating something that we're thinking we're offering to God as much as it is we become the Romans 12 sacrifice. I offer my body as a living sacrifice, which means my only real act of worship only occurs when I start and really truly and intentionally offer my body as the sacrifice first. I'm going to tell you that I think my opinion that most of the time a large crowd in the church doesn't even worship, they just experience someone else's worship. 
And I'm going to tell you that when we come together as an ecclesia, what if it is more about me as an individual sitting down because they went this, the, you know, to some kind of song that was a little more mellower, and then suddenly I just kind of start checking out and I start soaking? Well, then you just kind of dropped out of what God's doing in the one, and you made it about you as the individual. But what if it isn't as much about us figuring out how to give God an individual sacrifice of worship? What if it's really about us presenting ourselves as, as a corporate body of worshipers that God can fill and through our worship we can release something that didn't exist without it? First Peter says we're a kingdom of priests called to what? Show forth the magnificence and the praises of God. What if as an ecclesia we came together and three weeks ago we started to tap into one of the dimensions of what ecclesia could actually be where suddenly most of us in the building became one and God began to manifest himself and speak. You guys remember that? And so let me close with this. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. And then he says, all who are members of the ecclesia, rather, have the same goal to which they're called. Our hope of our calling, if we could sum up the mission of ecclesia into a very broad category, here's really what the mission is. Our mission is to make the name of God great in the earth. Our mission is to sanctify the name of the Lord and to proclaim it holy and to hallow that name. And as a part of that, that name is the center. That name above every name is what draws us together. And we suddenly lose what we want and we instead take up what God wants. And then we come to that place where we really understand that our mission is to hallow the name of God. And one of the primary ways we do that is through an assembly. And the other is by going to nations, discipling them, and telling them to obey the King of Kings. And so in our identity as a corporate body, what we understand is, is that the hope of our calling is really to sanctify the name of God in the earth. When he says, one Lord, Yeshua, as the true head of, who will authenticate and authorize leaders who represent the head. What we get wrong about fivefold ministry is in our American church system, that's, that a lot of it is influenced my, more by the world. We take fivefold ministers and we turn them into superstars and we worship them. And so what ends up happening is they carry weight, they carry mantles, they have specific things that they're called to do, but all fivefold ministers are to do is to represent the kingdom lordship of Jesus, not to draw people to themselves. And some do that. I've been in churches that do that. So you have to understand that no kingdom leader as a fivefold ministry was meant to build ministry empires off your back while you worship them as a superstar thinking that the only way you're going to get an anointing is if you go to this ministry or that ministry and they pass some mantle to you. When scripture says you have the same Holy Spirit that everybody else does and all they're called to do is help you see what Holy Spirit's already put in you. And I'm not saying that to demean them in any way, but we have to understand that leadership in the kingdom, that God expresses his leadership most. He's not a, CIO, a CEO. He's not even a general. The Bible says, our Father which art in heaven. Jesus constantly referred to him as his Father. And the way that the Lord expresses leadership, his leadership, is he does that through fathering. That's why ecclesia at its core has to be a fathering culture. We can't just talk about it. We have to do it. That means in our nature is not this idea that I want you to look to me and be drawn to me because I need to feel something. I need you to make me feel good about myself. It's rather seeing everyone as a kingdom citizen that God has entrusted into our care to help them fan the flame of that fiery spirit, to help them get totally equipped because zeal will lead the battle, lead you to battle, but it will never win it for you. Only equipping does that. And so let's, let's, take the, let's take the superstar status off fivefold ministers and let's just honor who they are as equippers and carrying a particular revelation of Christ. And as leaders, they should be representing his interests and not their own. And by the way, you should not be following people like that. So kind of winding this thing down here, this is why I love, I'm, I'm going to just say, I, I don't always do this. But, man, I really believe I'm new to Heart of the Father, but I'm going to tell you right now, there are some superstars in this church. And uh, I feel like I'm authorized to say it, and probably not as many as much as you guys because you've been here longer, 
But, you know, I live with Barry and Diane, and this man is a superstar in the kingdom. He is world class. And I was talking to someone yesterday, and it hit me that you, it's very rare that you find a man that makes decisions based on principles and not pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? It's whatever's best for the moment. It's a pragmat. You just, we're going to do whatever. It's kind of situational. But what you want are men who have a fear of the Lord in getting into the Word of God and fear of misinterpreting it. So they get into that Word so strong and they will search it out. And sometimes Barry and I will have these conversations and, and those wheels will start turning. And I know at some point he's going to start digging into the Word. And so the other day he came back, we were talking about something, just talking it through. And he had already researched thing, that thing out, brought me a little sheet about what it was. And he's one of the greatest people I've ever known to talk about theology with. I love talking about the Bible with Barry. That's what a kingdom leader does. So let me wind this down, and I'm going to kind of close with this. And let's repeat a passage that I think's probably been talked about a little, but I want to revisit one more time. In Ephesians 4, 7, he says, but grace, and I define grace this way. Grace is really the ability to do something that you couldn't ordinarily do without it. So when the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, charismas, Gifts were kind of added there, now concerning spirituals, or now concerning the Spirit. That's the same word a lot of times we get the word grace from. And so grace, when we talk about in, in context to the, to the gifts of the Spirit, we would carry a grace to manifest a gift that we don't ordinarily have. If we just try to start prophesying of our own volition, there is no grace from the Lord to speak on behalf or, or to speak as one who is energized or influenced by the Holy Spirit. And so what he says here, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts unto men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He, descended, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens. Why? So that he could fill everything. What's Jesus doing right now? We know he's a high priest. We know that he's interceding, and we know that he sits at the right hand of God, yet at the same time, he is working his purpose to fill all things. That's powerful. And he says, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So grace, in this context, is a supernatural endowment of God. In other words, I can't go to a, a conference and become an apostle. I don't care who lay hands on you and commissions you or any of that. If the grace to be a prophet is not in your life, you're not one. So, so again, you know, I know some people that collect. I, I, I heard the story told one time. The man of God gets up and he calls forth words of knowledges and says, hey, we're going to have people come up and be healed. And so he goes down the line and he starts praying for healing and he meets the lady that has this gigantic goiter on her neck. And what does she ask to get prayed for? She says, brother, could you pray for me? I'm having migraine headaches. She says, but don't pray for the goiter. I'm saving that for Benny Hinn. True story. So grace is the supernatural endowment. Gifts, I like to think of the gifts that he talks about here as the spoils of war. Jesus goes to hell, he wars, he wins, and he comes back with presents. And then he goes on to say, he begins to, dis to distribute his spoils of war to the ecclesia. So what are the gifts he's talking about? They're people. That Jesus loves you so much, he gives you gifts in the form of people. And this is what we have to understand. We, we can get fivefold leaders, at least some of them, or a lot of them perhaps, focused back on the right thing, that before you're here to pillage the people of God, you really need to be a gift to the body. 
So honoring a leader the right way and having a culture of honor is a kingdom culture. Learning to understand that we're not here to worship you, but we, we honor the gift that's in you. We honor that by receiving it and drawing from the well of their lives, right? And so God gives these gifts. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 that I have charismas and I'm giving you charismas. But then on the other side, he says, but I'm actually giving gifts in the form of people who are the gift. They don't just have gifts. And so to kind of wrap this up then, uh, what was that, my third closing? Um, gifts are leaders. And what I, wanna, what I really want to challenge you with maybe as the closing thought is that these gifts carry a revelation. I believe all five of them carry a revelation if they'll look and connect with it that helps the ecclesia come into a fullness so that we can function in fullness. If I'm spending all my time building my big ministry and getting you to follow me, like so many have done in the past, my wife and I have been a part of quite a few of them, and wondered what in, what in the world did we gain by doing any of that. And I'm not saying that to you from a cynical point of view. I'm saying that these days I am most interested in the body getting equipped, not the latest hypey poster about something that's happening in some other city. What I want to see is a body come together and carry such a revelation of the greatness of God that out of that we can't help but go out of this place really with a, with a fascination of God and how big and how magnificent that he is that everything else is, 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 is so small in comparison and that suddenly out of that revelation of God what we begin to realize is that we carry a kingdom on the inside of us. That kingdom gets stirred up every time we get together as an ecclesia. We begin to move and we begin to governmentally as a church exercise spiritual authority in this region and then suddenly the kingdom of God starts to manifest in a way that it isn't right now so in order for to have that happen and I'm done with this is I want to encourage us all to begin to rethink church and come back into kingdom stand with me so I hope I did a little better I wasn't near as nervous tonight as I was last time I don't know why I was so nervous but I want you to walk away with one thing tonight. I'm not mad at church. I don't hate church. I love Ecclesia. I love the coming together of God's people. I love, the, I love the thought and the idea that every single person sitting in this room tonight has a place and God set you into the body. And can I just make one more statement? Don't get mad at me, Brandon. I'm sorry. But listen, your destiny is not to be a kid's worker. When God made you, he didn't say your destiny is to be a greeter. All right? That, you know what that is? That's family housekeeping. That's everybody in the house doing their chores and doing their part to make this thing function. Is it a ministry? Sure it is because we do it as under the Lord. But what I'm telling you is each and every one of you in this room have a spiritual inheritance, Galatians 4 says. And part of that inheritance is that God had an idea about you that the ecclesia is supposed to help you discover. So what if we all came together and stopped, stopped watching church and spectating in church, and what if we all came together and said, right now, this is, Jeremiah and I were talking about this at lunch today, his message to the older crowd, it's not time to, to, to retire, it's time to refire, because you're, you haven't finished your destiny until you take your last breath. All right, so I want to challenge you tonight to begin to rethink your idea. And I want to ask you and challenge you tonight to take your exit out of consumer church and come into Ecclesia. I believe that is what we're building here. I believe that the heart of every elder in this building and every leader is to come together and to see God become magnificent and the only thing in the picture when we worship. So Father, in Jesus' name, I pray Holy Spirit, that you would begin to release such a divine revelation of what ecclesia is, that when you stood in front of the gates of Hades in Caesarea Philippi and you gave those disciples an object lesson and you said that just like there's a gates of hell here, I'm going to go into the gates of hell, I'm going to show you that it's not about a church that's withstanding the onslaught of hell, it's about a church that says Jesus overcame it and we will overcome it because we carry that same revelation that conquered you thousands of years ago ago.
And so, Father, I pray that you would put within us a heart and a desire to come together as one, to leave the individual behind, that you would, by Holy Spirit's power and authority, begin to bring forth a revelation of what ecclesia could be instead of spectating on Sunday morning. We come to gather around the mountain of the Lord and we listen to that thundering voice speak forth out of the authority of heaven. Lord, we ask you right now to begin to change and to get us free from consumer church and to get us free from this idea of church as a product and to begin to join in an active church that's moving and challenging hell in every facet of society. Lord, I pray that the worship would begin to be a revelation of Jesus Christ and that you would begin to increase it and begin to release that, 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 that revelation of who you are as Jesus at the center and what it is that you're building. That you would release the word and the voice of God within it. Lord, that in prayer meetings, that you would help us to come back to that place of realizing that we aren't praying as victims, but we're governing as the kingdom of God. And so this, this evening, Lord, I pray that in some way, Holy Spirit, you would begin to manifest this idea and this desire that would help us to realize that every single one of us is coming together, that we have the kingdom in us, and that we, we should learn how to manifest it and cause it to displace darkness everywhere we go. And Jesus, lastly, we say we could not assemble without recognizing that you are the head of the church, that you have been given the name above all things, that your Father gave you everything, and that we in turn make it our life's mission to see, what you, to see that you get your inheritance and what you paid for. So this evening, Lord, we say we put you at the center. You're the center of it all. It's not a man-centered church. It's a Jesus-centered church. And Lord, we say that you raise up heart of the Father to be a living revelation of the Father's heart in Lakeland and in the surrounding regions and that you would even begin to manifest it around the world. That you would put within every single person here an understanding that what's in them is way bigger than anything on the outside of them. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.